March 11, 2012 in Slovenia, and we're going to be meditating on love. Is that all right? If you don't like love, you can leave. (laughs) So in order for there to be love, there has to be two people to exchange and then the love between them. By the way, if, I, if I'm talking too fast or if I say anything you don't understand, just stop and ask me, okay? Or if anyone who's just listening in English, same thing. If I say something too fast or I use a word that you don't, I, I really try to talk very slowly and distinctly. But if there's anything you don't understand, you will, you'll ask me? Yes. Deal? So the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is one of the holiest books from India, describes that the absolute truth can be understood in three levels. One is just as undifferentiated existence and energy called Brahman or the great. And you find people speaking about God like that. Just existence, the great, the powerful, being, I am. A deeper realization of God is how God is everywhere, in every atom, andantarasta paramanu chayantarastam, Param Anu. Anu means small. Param means very small. Stum. He's staying there in what's very small. And he's within the heart of anything that's alive. Plants, insects, birds, animals, people, everything. He's all pervading. He is there as the witness the overseer, the judge. So this is understanding of God as the super self. Just like in our body, there's many cells, and each cell is alive. But we are the big self. Right? We're the, we're the main ones running this body. Or in a business, there's the owner. And if the owner closes the business, everybody is out of work. So we are the self, and there's an understanding of God as the self of the self. As if the universe were one big body, and each of us were a little cell. And there was a, a super soul of the universe. So that's another understanding of God. But neither of those understandings of God allow us really to exchange love. 
the first understanding just that God is great and that he exists and that he's energy, that gives us some realization of peace and existence. But you can't really just love being and energy. And as far as God as the super soul or the super self, it's very difficult also to have an exchange of love. It's much more a business relationship. It's much more that God is the soul of the universe and we are all parts working for our own interests, just like the cells of the body work for their own interests and also for his interests. And most religious systems understand God only in these ways. As the Supreme Father and Judge and Witness, or just as energy. But the Srimad Bhagavatam goes a step further and understands that God is a person. And a person with many forms, many names, and many activities. And in each of these forms, he has ex personal exchanges of love with the living entities. Now, from a philosophical point of view, this may be a little difficult to understand because God being very great and able to satisfy all of his own desires and indeed being everything, why would he want an exchange of love? Generally, we exchange love with someone because we have some feeling of incompleteness. We love someone to feel ourselves more complete. But God, who is the complete whole, Om Purnamada Purnamidam, why would he want to love? And why would he love someone as small and insignificant as me? I mean, in our day-to-day -day lives, we feel ourselves to be very important. I mean, it's kind of interesting that each of us in this room has a consciousness that's centered in our own self. And we're primarily aware of our own self. Isn't that interesting? And the other people here are mostly aware of their selves. We're very absorbed in our life and our dreams and our hopes and our disappointments and our desires. So we tend to think that we're very important. But really, to other people, we're not very important. I mean, we might like to believe that, but it just isn't true. You know, I know I've said this here in Slovenia before, but very few people know the names of their great-great-grandfathers. Which means our great-great-grandchildren will not know our names. Now, even to our own family members, we are really not that important. I mean, we might try to get in the history books 
maybe if we you know if we really do something either very wonderful or very terrible that we might be in the history books for a hundred years we were just in Budapest and we went to the circle of kings or the circle of heroes or something like that we were driving back from our chanting party and the devotee driving us said Oh, there are statues of all the great Hungarian kings and the Hungarian soldiers. And oh, okay. I don't really care to know any of their names or what they did. I mean, if I was a school child in hung in Hungary, then I probably wouldn't care either. But I'd have to learn it for an exam. <laughs> so you know, if you're really famous, then some child will be cursing you because they have to learn your name for their exam. And if we think in terms of the whole reality, you know, this planet is just a speck in the universe. I mean, it's really just a speck to those who live on the other planets and stars. We're just a little shining light in the sky. And on this planet, we're just a speck. I'm a speck on a speck. And the Vedas teach us that there's more than one universe, and each universe is a speck. So we're a speck on a speck on a speck. So if I think honestly about my own position, why would God, who's the greatest, who's everywhere, who has everything, why would he care to love me? And the word that's used in the scriptures is causeless. Really, love in general is causeless. Can you really explain why you love someone? I mean, you can try. But it may not make sense to other people. Haven't you sometimes had a friend, they love someone, and you're like, why do they love that person? Why do you love him? Or why do you love her? They can't even really explain it. Love, by definition, doesn't really have a cause. As one person said to me today, I love this person because she brings out the best in me. So really, that's the kind of love that God, that Krishna has for us. He just loves us just because. Without any particular reason. Just because it's so wonderful to love. I mean, I think even in our own limited human experience, <coughs> there are very, very few things that really bring out the best in us and give us more happiness and more satisfaction and perhaps more <laughs> agony than loving somebody. <clears throat> There's very few things that intense. I mean, maybe hating is also intense, but that's also intense and wonderful and mysterious and that brings out the best in us. When we love somebody, we're willing to sacrifice for them. 
happily. And somehow we have this film where we see our beloveds in their best light. How wonderful if we could be like that with everyone, if we could see the good in everyone, if we felt this overflowing energy of giving to others. It's an incredible experience. So God likes that experience. And he likes it so much that there are an unlimited number of living beings like us with whom he can share that experience. And that experience is a little different with each one of us. Just like if you have several children, so you love each of your children a little differently. And each of your family members, you have a little different experience of love with them. So God is enjoying this. One of our definitions of God, of Krishna, is that he's a supreme enjoyer. Now, usually in this world, when we talk about someone as an enjoyer, what we really mean is that they're an exploiter. They're taking something. They're enjoying at the expense of someone else. But that's not the kind of enjoyer that Krishna is. What Krishna is enjoying is giving. That's what he takes pleasure in. If he doesn't need to take, he's already complete. He enjoys in giving and in appreciating the wonderful qualities of each of us. His enjoyment is in bringing out the best in us, in seeing our happiness, in seeing how we fit into our proper place in the whole cosmos. That's how he is the supreme enjoyer. He is enjoying having exchanges of the finest kind of love we experience here, cleansed of any impurities and multiplied by thousands and thousands of times. And that is what he's inviting us to participate in to love him in exchange, to accept his love. In this worldly existence, although we all want this kind of love, many of us have been hurt in the name of love. Or we are afraid of it. This whole Krishna conscious process, this process of bhakti, is simply opening one's heart to receive Krishna's love and love him in return. That's really all it is. And that is the most simple and direct and natural process of enlightenment. Because that is the ultimate light. That is the ultimate truth. There are other systems of enlightenment which are real, which are in the scriptures, but none of them get directly to the root of truth and bliss. And all of them involve something mechanical. 
Whereas bhakti, just opening our heart to love, is our original position. Now we have systems for doing this that appear to be ritualistic, that may even appear superficially to have some sort of mechanics to them. Like we chant, and when we chant, we may hold beads, a certain kind of beads in a certain way, and we have certain ways of worshiping the Lord in the form of the deity and certain prayers to offer our food. But those should not be mistaken for something mechanical. It's just like if you want to contact me, I may give you a phone number and you have to dial the numbers in the right order or I may give you an email address and you have to type it in properly. So you may say, oh, it's a mechanical means of contacting you. No, the way of contacting me is still a personal exchange of emotion. So I thought we could just do a little bit of meditation on a few stories of how Krishna exchanges love with the living entities. So, of course, one that I hope most of you are familiar with is when there was a great war about 5,000 years ago at the beginning of the present age. So, at that time, the people ruling the planet were evil. Although they were good rulers in one sense, they were directing people towards materialism. They were taking the bounty of the earth for themselves. They weren't bringing the population towards enlightenment. And Krishna, who had incarnated on the earth at that time, he tried many, many means over many, many years to try to get things back in order through peaceful means. Uh, but finally, these evil rulers decided that there had to be a war. So at that time, Krishna, the Supreme Lord, the Absolute Truth, he took the role of a servant of his devotee Arjuna. Arjuna was uh, by birth a prince, and his elder brother was the rightful ruler. So in fighting this battle, Krishna took the role of a servant out of love, uh, just to please his devotee. And in this role of Arjuna's chariot driver, he saved Arjuna from many dangerous elements. When the great fighter Bhishma was attacking Arjuna, although Krishna had said, I will not fight, I will not take any weapons, he picked up a chariot wheel and went to save his devotee. We have sometimes, you may see the form of Jagannath. Most of you have seen the form of Jagannath? With his really big eyes, and his, you can't see his legs, and his hands are like withdrawn into his form. So this is when Krishna is contemplating the love of his devotees in Vrindavan. He's meditating on how much his devotees have love for him, and how much he loves them in Vrindavan. And he's so stunned just thinking about this love that his eyes get very big and he withdraws into his form. There was one devotee of Krishna named Vidura and he was a government minister but he lived very simply. 
and he invited Krishna to his house for lunch. So Krishna had also gotten an invitation from the king, that was the evil king who got defeated in the war, Duryodhan. And Krishna said, I don't really want to have a fancy lunch in the home of someone who's evil. Better to go to the simple house of my devotee. So when he was at Vidura's house, Vidura was so overwhelmed with love for Krishna. He was just looking at Krishna. And as he's looking at Krishna, he had some bananas. And as he was peeling the bananas, he just gave Krishna the peel. Because he wasn't looking at what he was doing. He was so overwhelmed with love. And Krishna also looking at Vidura with love, he took the peel and he ate it. We find also Krishna's devotee, Sudama Brahmana. He was a very poor man. And his wife had said to him, Krishna is your friend. Why don't you go to him and ask him for money? And Sudama's mood was, I'm not going to ask Krishna for money. Whatever Krishna gives me, I'm satisfied with. It doesn't matter to me whether I'm rich or I'm poor. As long as I have Krishna's love, what more do I need? But his wife kept saying, but Krishna's your friend. He'll help you out. She was feeling so bad for how poor her husband was. And finally he said, all right, you know, if it'll make you happy. Anyway, I'll get to see Krishna. And then he said, but I have to bring some present. You know, it used to be when you went to visit someone, you would bring a gift. He said, what, what am I going to bring? We're so poor, we don't have anything. So his wife said, well, I'll get something from the neighbors. So she got a little piece of cloth and she baked just a little bit of very low-quality rice. They call it chipped rice, little rice pieces. Not very nice. And he tied it up and he brought it there. When he went to see Krishna, he felt like he was diving and surfacing in an ocean of spiritual ecstasy. And Krishna was so happy to see Sudama that he sat Sudama on his own bed, washed his feet. Uh, Rukmini was fanning Sudama, and Krishna was talking with him. Oh, you remember that we did this together, we did that together. So wonderful to see an old friend. And Sudama never asked for anything. And at one point Krishna said, you know, I know that you follow the etiquette and you must have brought some gift for me. Don't you have any gift for me? And Sudama was just like, you know, he was a little embarrassed. He didn't want to give Krishna this cheap rice. And Krishna just found the little bundle and pulled it and opened it up and said, oh, thank you for bringing me this wonderful rice. And he took a little piece of it and he ate it. One can imagine it probably wasn't cooked rice probably just raw rice. And as he ate it, he said, this is wonderful. He said, you should know, Sudama, that whenever someone offers me something with love, I very happily accept it. And Sudama felt so embarrassed that Krishna was eating this rice. And then when he was walking back to his house, he thought, the Lord is so kind that he knew that if he gave me opulence, that I would misuse it. Uh, therefore, he didn't offer me any kind of riches. And he was just satisfied. But when he got home, he saw that his home had transformed into a palace that looked like heaven itself. And of course, that's part of the loving dealings of Krishna. 
Just like we like to give our friends a surprise, right? So he wanted to surprise his friend. So Krishna's loving dealings are not impersonal. They're not without sweetness. They're not mechanical. But it's an exchange where Krishna's like, okay, I'm going to give him some opulence, but I'm going to give him it in a way that will be a surprise. That will be something where he's just in wonder. Oh, how did my home turn into a palace? And of course, Krishna, with the damsels of Vrindavan, who are all madly in love with Krishna. So they dance with Krishna. And when they dance with Krishna, although there are thousands of them, Krishna dances with each one. He has a relationship with each one individually, and each of these young girls thinks, Krishna is only dancing with me. And they also sit down on the bank of the river and they take off their shawls and they put them on the soft sand. And the shawls of each of these girls, they have the fragrance of their bodies, uh, which because they have spiritual bodies, we cannot even imagine how fragrant they are. It is said that on the higher planets of the universe, the residents have a bodily fragrance that expands for miles and miles and miles. But we cannot even imagine the fragrance of the spiritual body. So they put down their shawls that are very fragrant. And then again, Krishna sits next to each of them. And each of them thinks, Oh, Krishna is only sitting with me. I am, I am his dear most. I am his favorite. Actually, Sanatana Goswami says, that each of the friends of Krishna, they think, I am Krishna's favorite. And they actually are. That Krishna can have each one of them as his favorite. When he sits in the center of his friends, although there are thousands and thousands and thousands of friends, each one perceives that Krishna is facing me, and he's just looking at me, and he's talking with me. Uh, so this is how Krishna shows this deeply personal love for his devotees. So how can we practice to receive Krishna's love, to make ourselves open? And the first way we can do that, and we were talking a little bit about that this morning, is to see even the events within our very short and admittedly very inconsequential life on earth as being evidence of Krishna's love. Now we tend to see that Krishna loves us only when things in our life happen the way that we want them to happen. Of course, even then we might not see that. When things happen the way we want them to happen, we could think, oh, that's because I'm so clever or I'm so deserving, or I knew the right people. Somehow we could claim credit for when everything goes well. And when everything goes poorly, then we think, oh, God doesn't like me. But rather, whatever happens to us in our life, whether it's good or bad from the point of view of temporary time and space and our limited ability to understand, we can focus on it as evidence of Krishna's love. 
that somehow Krishna is trying to bring us back to our position of an exchange of love with Him. If one practices seeing like that, when we say seeing God everywhere, we don't only mean, we do mean, but we don't only mean some sort of advanced mystic vision. That is there also. It's not that that's not what we mean. But we also mean at seeing how his hand is there, how he's dealing with us, how everything is an opportunity to come closer to him. We may think, well, all this circumstance is good to come closer to Krishna in love, and this circumstance is not. But to what degree do we have total control over the circumstances of our lives? So rather, we try our best to be in circumstances that will enhance our love for Krishna. But whatever happens to us, we see, okay, how can I use this as evidence of Krishna's love? How can I see in this evidence of Krishna's love? How can I feel that Krishna is being kind to me? And how can I show that I love him in whatever circumstance that I'm in? One of the processes of bhakti is becoming Krishna's friend. So not only feeling that he's my friend, but acting as his friend. How can I make him happy? How can I do things that are good to him? How can I show him my love? Such a simple process. And of course, we have particular practices like chanting on beads, chanting together in song, worshiping the deity, offering our food, reading the scriptures. But all of them have this purpose simply of opening the heart to who we really are. And once Krishna sees that we are sincere lovers, that we are not exploiters, then he will also reveal himself to us. And that is what we are doing in the Hare Krishna movement. Everything we're doing, everything we're saying, everything we're eating, whatever, is meant simply to do that. So that we should consider every day to what extent am I exchanging love with the supreme absolute truth? To what extent am I acting as his lover, as his friend, giving my love to him? And to what extent am I being grateful and appreciative and in wonder of how he is loving me? And, how, and to what extent am I developing my individual, personal, internal relationship with him? So do we have time for questions, or how does this work? We do, until what time? Ten minutes. Okay. So I hope I spoke slowly enough and clearly enough for everybody. Nobody stopped me, so I figured I was doing okay. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions, corrections? Yes. Um, 
you talked about uh, love and you talked about bad things and people behaving bad. Um, I can't understand why, uh, but isn't this, isn't it a kind of Krishna existence also uh, to live a life as a bad behaving guy or girl? How, how could I understand this? How could I understand uh, why are people so massively uh, uh, behaving against uh, these things? Why is there evil? Hmm. I don't think that evil is really true. Well, I think evil is kind of uh, a thing we see on a lower dimension. I think evil, let's say, explodes if you go to a higher dimension. You are correct. So what is your question? Hmm. <laughs> I can think about it. Thank you. You are correct. Those who are on a higher level of consciousness do not see evil. They see that everything is good. You are correct. Excuse me? Correct. You said that uh, one of the processes of bhakti is to see Krishna as one's friend and to act like his friend also. Yes. And uh, I was thinking how I feel towards my best friend, Joe was my best friend. And um, I was wondering how to, what, what should I do to feel like that towards Krishna? Because okay, we offer food, we chat, but that's not really a friendly relationship. But that sounds fantastic to actually act like Krishna's friend. Could you just say something? Like okay, well, what do you do for your, for your friend in this world? I like her, I think about her. It's mostly something that you can't, that I'm doing again. That's why I'm asking mm. What a lovely question. So how do we become, how do we get to that point with someone in this world? How do you get there? What do you do exactly? What is it that sparks that feeling of friendship for somebody? Appreciation. And how do you get that? What do you do to get that appreciation? You get to know them. It does come, but what sparks it? Spending time with them. The first time that I met Srila Prabhupada, one of the things he said was that the essence of every religion is to know God and love Him. So therefore you have to know Him. And the more you know about Him, the more you will feel affection for Him. I mean, at first, you may tend to know him in terms of greatness, the creator, the witness, that kind of thing. But even Srila Prabhupada gave us Krishna book. So even in the beginning, one can know Krishna not just as the Lord.
but as this eternal coward boy prince who does all these funny things. He's very playful. I mean, even what he did with Sudama, wasn't that playful? He doesn't say anything. Just the whole time Sudama's there in Dwarka, Krishna says nothing about his poverty. I mean, he says to him, oh, you must have gotten married. And remember when we were at school together? And Sudama's there in rags. And Krishna's there as the prince of Dwarka with 16,000 palaces. And he never says to him, you look kind of skinny. And you look kind of poor. Can I help you out? You all right? Not a word. And Sudama never says anything. He doesn't say, um, can you help me out? I mean, his wife wanted him to say it, but he just, he really didn't care. And then Sudama leaves and he's just like, wow, Krishna is so kind, he never brought up about my poverty. That in itself is really amazing, that he was thinking like that. And then he just gets home and everything's there. He had a palace and servants and his wife was gorgeously dressed. And Krishna's very playful. Wouldn't you like to have a friend like that? I mean, just meditate on any of Krishna's pastimes. If you, if you take any of, of Krishna's activities, Krishna's qualities, and you really think about them, you really take the time. What does this mean? What kind of a person is this? You can't help but like him. I just you, Try it. You know, any of Krishna's activities... So he's very little and he's playing with his friends and he puts some dirt in his mouth. And then Balaram goes to Mother Yasoda and says, Krishna hey dirt, Krishna hey dirt. Krishna, did you eat dirt? No. He's lying. We were playing a game and they didn't like what I was playing so they're lying about me. If you want to know, look in my mouth. You'll see there's no dirt. Okay, open your mouth. There's the universe. It's all the planets, and there's time, and there's work, and there's space, and there's... I mean, there wasn't just physical gross matter. You know, she saw Jupiter, and Venus, and Saturn, and Alpha Centauri, and the Milky Way, and... But she also saw subtle things. She saw impetus for work and motivation and relationships and karma and time. And she even saw herself. She didn't see a vision of herself. She didn't see a picture of herself. She saw herself. How do you do that? (laughs) 
And then she's just like, oh, I'm usually an illusion. I, I think Nanda Maharaj is my husband and Krishna is my son. Now what's really interesting about Yasoda saying this is on the level of rasa, Nanda Maharaj is her husband and Krishna is her son. And then she's sort of, sort of reeling. And then Krishna withdraws this vision and says, oh, I'm just your little boy. How can you not like somebody like that? I mean, he's so like a bull. So take any of Krishna's activities. And if you really, you know, think about them, you'll become, you'll become appreciative or any of Krishna's qualities. You know, Rupa Goswami mentions so many of Krishna's qualities in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. How grateful Krishna is. This is also nice with the story of Sudama, that Sudama says generally we think the gifts of the Lord are less than what we want. You have this experience, you want something, Krishna gives you that, and then very soon afterwards you're asking for something else. That's not enough. But with Krishna, one little piece of cheap rice, he says. He's so grateful. You say, just say his name and he's grateful. Even if you don't mean to say his name, even if you just say Sinarama, he gets all excited. Oh, they said my name. They care about me. He's very open-hearted, almost naive, you could say. You just say Sinarama and he's so happy. Say Harriet. You have a name like that here, Harriet? We have a name like that in America for a girl, Harriet. And he's happy. Oh, somebody said my name. So open-hearted. Is that all right? So you wonder, how do you get that affection for Krishna? You hear. And you, you hear not as a ritual, not as a way of, not as some sort of religious, you know, this is my religion. So, okay, it's my time to hear, and I'll open up the scripture, and I'll read, and okay, I finished my reading for the day. And not reading to know the plot. Actually, the plot is not very important. It's not so important, you know, first Krishna did this, then he did this, then Mr. Bodhi did this, and getting it all right. That, that, that really has very little importance. What we call pastimes, Prabhupada explains, is just an exchange of relationship. So when you read the stories, make an effort to emotionally enter into the story. Hey, we do that. You know, we know how to do that. Everybody knows how to do that. Everyone here has read a book or watched a movie in their life? At least once? Okay, so we all know how to do that. We all know how to emotionally connect. Just do it with Krishna. 
you want to know why it's so hard? Because when we connect with Krishna, we'll see the truth. And there's certain aspects of the truth we don't want to see. And there's certain aspects of the truth that we're highly resisting seeing. That we're very afraid to see. Not logically, not rationally, but anyway. And that's why it's so hard. If you want to know. Okay, let's take one more. Is that all right? It also helps to hang out with people who like Krishna, by the way. That helps a lot. I have one comment. Yes, comments welcome. I can speak very quickly, no, no problem. Okay. So, uh, in the at the beginning of your lecture, you mentioned about uh, why God, who is uh, omnipresent in every atom, param paramanu, why he should uh, share individual love to individual beings. So I have a very simple uh, explanation for this. Like the sunlight is uh, pervaded throughout the universe, it spreads sunlight. Uh, the sunlight is dispersed throughout space. But in the very sun, it is most concentrated. And that is the charm of the sun, the dignity of the sun. And in the same way, even though the love of the God is dispersed throughout the space and the universe. In the, in the, in the way the individual love exists, in that form, the love is most concentrated. Like the sun is most concentrated at its origin, but throughout space is only dispersed in every atom. So in this way, uh, individual love is just uh, concentrated universal love. It's like the universal law, just the extension or ex extended individual law. Thank so you. This is That's just very nice. the concentrated and dispersed. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's lovely. Okay, I think we need to end now. Thank you very much. Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai.